Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I'm really, really excited to be announcing our next speaker, Mary Duggan. Mary Duggan's work I've admired for a, a very long time. I think it's fair to say Mary has also gave me one of my kind of favourite anecdotes of architecture in choosing her bathroom tiles in a shade of pink to match her skin so the neighbours couldn't see her from across the street. <laughs> As she is architectural enough not to have blinds or curtains on her windows. But Mary's work is well known. I think she's going to talk a little bit um, about previous work and also about the exciting work she's now doing as Mary uh, Duggan Architects. Mary, among other things, is also on uh, the advisory board of the London Festival of Architecture and has been key in helping us grow and evolve the festival over the last few years and developing it into the place and the space where we can have the sort of debates that we've been having today. So we're really indebted for that contribution as well to our programme. So without further ado, um, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Mary Duggan to the stage. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here and I'm delighted to be invited and thank you for the lovely introduction. I'm quite nervous, so I thought I'd just get that out there in the, in, before we start. It takes a lot for me to say yes to these uh, invitations and... Um, in fact, my sister always says to me, have you lost weight, Mary? And I say, yes. And the next thing she says to me is, have you done a talk? And I say, yeah. Saying yes to talks are basically my diet because I kind of burn a lot of calories just preparing for them. I'm reading a book at the moment, and I thought I'd open with that. Um, it's a book called Delirium by Douglas Cooper. I'm not sure if I'm going to recommend that you read it, but it's, it's an interesting book for me because it talks about an architect... Um, the, the book is based on Philip Johnson, but the pseudonym for Philip Johnson in this book is Ariel Price. And the story begins with this architect who absolutely adores himself, and he gets a letter from someone who's writing a biography about him. And the biographer basically says, I, I think you're a loser, and I'm going to start writing this about you. And he sets out to kill him. So I think it's quite an interesting it's quite interesting for me on a number of levels. One is, you know, it talks about... I haven't finished the book yet, but it talks about architects and their egos and, you know, we all know about Philip Johnson and, and the buildings he's constructed and his accu the accusations about his style-mongering and he instigated the international style and all of those things. Um, but I... The book itself, the biographer is in parallel with his life, he's, he's sort of reflecting on him. So before he's reached these moments in his life, there's this, this sort of, um, you know, the little devil on his shoulder telling him what he's doing and perhaps why he shouldn't be doing it. So it's, it's almost like a reflection on a, on a reality, um, a reality and a memory, let's say. Um, the other statement at the beginning of the book, um, there's a, a preface to chapter one, um, is Philip Johnson's very state famous statement, which is, I am a whore. And that's interesting for me, perhaps abstracted from the book, because it says a lot. I mean, obviously he made that statement, I think, in a lecture in Yale in 1960, um, in a response to a question about commercialism. He was constructing high-rise buildings, and 
His statement was very much saying, yes, I've, I've given into this commercial machine, I'm making lots of money now. And there's something in the profession at the moment, there's a, there's a, a strange sort of discomfort about this fact that architecture is a business and you run a business and yes, you have to make money and somehow we talk a lot about the reasons that we can't do it. Um, the other thing about that quote is that word, W-H-O-R-E, which you know, is, is just this gender issue, I guess. It's, I don't have any hugely emotive issues around gender, but I do every now and then come across words that I just find quite difficult to say out loud, along with many other words that are just in the industry and in construction, such as there are awkward moments that, let's say, that um, I think we all tackle with as females. One that was said to me the other day really made me laugh. I was talking to a services engineer about thermostats in flats. And have you ever specified a nice one? We all do it. And he said, actually, I have, Mary. And he really struggled. He said, I don't know how to describe it to you. But the only way I can describe it to you is to say, it looks like a nipple and you twist this nipple on the wall, and there was just this huge cringe moment. And these are the sort of things, I think, happen in architecture. Male, female, connector, parts, that sort of thing. Um, so so I, I like the, just to, to kind of, hopefully the book will have some relevance to this talk. It's a reflection. It talks about egos, arrogance, ideas about reflection, potentially this idea of stepping off a treadmill, the, 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 the operation of business I think we're all in, we're trying to make it work, we try very hard to make it work, but perhaps we don't have the opportunity to make some really sound considerations because we're so immersed in it. Um, the other book I've read, and it's hard, you know, hard to read books, is this book called Ikigai, and it's The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life. And it's, it's really interesting to me because it starts by talking about the, these blue zones and why people live for, in these blue, blue zones for so long. And, and within Japanese culture, there's lots of ideas about tendering to plants. You know, you, you live with a garden, you tend your, your garden in the morning, in the afternoon and in the evening. You, there are ways of keeping happy, which is... Um, to really stretch yourself, think about, you know, perhaps stepping outside of a, a comfort zone to learn something, but within a limitation, and understanding and constantly reflecting on what actually will make you happy and what's the thing that's going to, you know, enable you to stretch out a life which is um, satisfying. Um, eat small amounts. There's all this, this re really great, interesting advice in that. And, it, you know, I read it and I instantly just wanted to slow down. I read it in a few hours and that's not something that I'm able to do generally. Um, so um, the... First year I talk about um, Doug and Morris Architects. Um, this is a snapshot of Doug Morris Architects website, um, which I established with Joe Morris in 2004. In 12 years, it grew from two, I guess, I think we set up at five to 50. Um, so when we demerged in early last year, um, the practice was 50. 
Um, our manifesto, if, if you like, and we, you know, we sort of wrote one, um, was to build good architecture. I think, we, I think we'd all say that. Um, but to start at the bottom and, and work our way upwards and run a business, not, you know, neither of us had a lot of money actually, so there were no guarantors or patrons. So we were really interested in making the practice work as a business. Um, so we took on projects, some that we just perfect to be perfect, pretend that they never happened, <laughs> that we, we worked on them and they earned money. And others, you know, most of them here that were really successful projects um, that actually um, I'm really proud of, um, which is an, the next, I think, important point for me is I don't think, if I was still in that practice, I could never say that about Doug and Morris Architects. I could never sort of look at it and stand at a networking event and say, we're doing really well. We've got all of these really amazing projects and, you know, here they all are. I never could really do that because I think you get so caught up in practice and money and HR things and all sorts of quite um, emotive things that... It makes it very difficult for you to step outside that and take a look and, 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 and make some, I think, sensible judgments about what you're actually doing. Um, so maybe back to the book. There's now, I suppose, I'm outside of it and I'm looking back at it and there's a bit of storytelling. Um, I, so I, I've, I've looked at the practice. I, I took the decision that I was going to leave um, and there are lots of things about the practice in 2016 that were very different from the practice in, let's say, 20, 2008 that I enjoyed. But given this opportunity, this second chance, if you like, I felt potentially there, was, there were things that I could review. And in reviewing them... Um, I think I've drawn some conclusions and I've, I've set up a new practice. So the things that really bothered me with the practice at 50 is you, you grow. Your, your client, we started out with fairly green clients who are developing sites, let's say, and you, you move through the ranks and you, you, you get commissioned by a, a good client. And a good client is someone who knows how to manage banks, knows how to manage teams and all of those things. And I, I felt that with... Whilst it's, it was great to have those high-profile projects, actually what we found in practice is that the teams got bigger and the justification for the work changed or our approach to design changed in that we would design, you know, for sure. No, no question about that. There was a, a process that we followed, which is to, to develop a, a good solution to a, a design brief. But then there was a sort of parallel piece of work that I always found really weird, and that was to justify all of the things that you were not doing. So you draw, say, ten options, and there'd be one option, which was very obvious. We're architects, we're intuitive, we, we know what we're doing. But somehow we found ourselves drawing the eight options so we could say to our clients and they could say to their bankers or their investors or their boards that 
these architects are working really hard. Look, they're telling us what the best option is. Somehow, somehow there was a kind of duplication in the process and less of a focus on, I think, what we do as architects, which is to, to design really well. And I always, always felt that investment in time, the people who were drawing the things that we weren't going to do and the people who were preparing the presentation because we had to present to boards and blah, 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 were, was, just, was just too much. And then you wonder why the fee isn't working. So that, that frustrated me. And then there are other things about procurement and project managers. And I think Amanda Levite has sort of warned us all not to let project managers take control of design process. And I think we're all well aware of what those things mean. Um, and then going back to the success of the practice, I, you know, I, I, I can genuinely say now, Doug and Morris, as it currently exists, and it's, it's marching forwards, and they're, and they're doing really, really well, are a, a really good practice, because I think they set out in the first instance, the they being me then, to make a business in architecture that works, and make it commercial, but not to forget that actually to do that, you need to design very well, and be very convincing. I think the other aspect, the other, the other thing that's interesting to me about the partnership... Um, is the collaboration. So two directors, Joe Morris, Mary Duggan. There is a perception that the Mary Duggan was the designer and the Duggan Morris was the front man. And in a way, that, that's true. I think you, you, you work with the skills that you have when you're in a practice. So Joe did get sent out to, to do fantastic presentations and win work. And I tend to be in the studio working the design, but we, we both also have each other's skills and, and, and Joe Morris is an excellent designer. Incredibly strategic and, and, and successful now leading um, Doug and Morris architects. But I think in that, what's interesting to me is that was a, it was a practice that's a, a collaboration of two partners um, and there are many practices like that. Um, but very different, I think, to a practice such as O'Donnell and Toomey where both practitioners are a sort of, if I was to draw a Venn, it would be an overlapping, the Venn being the brain, the brain would overlap, and both of those characters are very much part of the architecture. I think in our practice we, would, we were different people, which has allowed us to sort of demerge, um, hopefully, and take two different practices away from that, which hopefully will move forward to be um, successful in, in whatever description each other has or describes success so there's something about experience um, in architecture that I also find interesting because I think the term ex experience on one level is I understand procurement, I understand how to manage a team, to coordinate you know I can present to you and I can be very convincing on the other is that you know experience is being part of architecture, you know, responding to architecture, thinking about what it actually means and who, who benefits. So I thought I'd talk very quickly about um, three projects, Doug and Morris projects. My favourite out of that whole um, portfolio is um, this project, which is uh, Alfredson Swimming Pool, which is a school in Beaconsfield, um, a swimming pool. We won, I think, in the project in 2008 and it wasn't delivered for four years because of various fundraising activity. And there's a big backstory that I could tell you about how we constructed it 
to safeguard the children and, and all of those things. But it's, it's a public building because it was for the school but also opened up to a, a public audience. So they run uh, classes in the evening and generated money and various other things. But this, this is actually my nephew um, who's autistic and this was a special needs school and we decided to, to bring him to this pool for a day I twisted the, the head teacher's arm and this is a genuine story by the way when I tell people this I, I think oh, they must think I've made it up but he hated swimming and we brought him to this building and it, it really changed his mind because we, we fought very hard to have a, a level deck swimming pool which is water on the same plane as the, the ground and he sort of described it as a giant puddle Acoustically, it's a really, really calm space. And, you know, it was a day that he really enjoyed and genuinely moving forward, it, it completely changed his mind about swimming. So I love that building because of my exposure to his um, being part of it and being involved in it. I think the next one is Kingsgrove. Um, and again, along similar subjects, this is, this is a building that... Um, it's a house, it's a site I bought for myself, constructed a house um, to live in. Um, this is a very, it's a, a pretty photograph, a kind of website photograph taken by James Britton. Um, it was a lovely house to live in. I, in designing it, making lots of value engineering, cost-cutting decisions, I could, you know, in a way I could critique my own work see if it worked well, it was open plan. But actually, again, I think what I really enjoyed about it in the end, you know, there was the pain of building and buying and money and contractors, but actually enjoying, you know, the the place that I'd built, these views across neighbouring gardens, these horrible photographs that actually described to me very well what what it was like to live there. You know, this, this, we had this big idea about a front garden which became completely overgrown because I'm a terrible gardener. But there are, there's something about, you know, my awareness now, looking back at that project and having lived in it, which is sort of very, is what I'm interested in in, in terms of experiencing architecture. And this one, um, a Doug and Morris scheme, perhaps you know it, talks a lot about the context in which Doug and Morris really establish itself and that's very much London based this condition of old conservation and and new things so I, I like this photograph because the scheme that's ours is is doesn't oh, well there that's the scheme that we delivered after a very sort of painful series of discussions with local authority and then there's the city in the background the gherkin the heron tower and all of the, all of those other things and it was, a, it was a tough job because for all, the planners disliked it. Um, somehow London didn't want it. We wanted to strip out the, the, the base buildings on the, on the site and we had to keep them. And that's really why we, the, the project ended up being, being the way it was. Um, but it's... I, I, I like it because it's, it, it's become a friend to me. I live very close to this building and I look at it every day and it's quite important to me that 
I still like it. I've always had this concern that I might design a building, and there are those, and we don't talk about them anymore. But I'm happy that, you know, it's there. It's, it's sort of background, and it says, says a lot about London. It was... This is just an image I really like, which is a reflection in the city, which is a very heavy masonry um, architecture predominantly against this, this very lightweight structure. But also incredibly ironic. So this, the story behind this problem, which was to build a, a commercial development on top of what was originally residential housing with very low ceilings, was... Um, that we needed to retain the block and the fabric of the block, this urban condition. But actually, in doing that, we discovered that it's not a heavy block, it's not an urban condition. It was actually just a very slim veneer, which was the residue of, a, of an existing domestic um, housing typology. And I think that says a lot about... And then there was a meanwhile project, because the project, the Thames water things were leaking into the property, and we had to somehow keep it alive so we commissioned an artist to to install a, a, um, a light installation just to keep this sort of idea that um, this project its presence in the street was somehow important that you know in the longer term there would be a building there but actually in the short term this two years it was sort of part of someone's um, day-to-day so that's, and then there are other projects. Um, this one was a, a competition for the Cadogan Estate. Um, I really love this one because we had to design, uh, invite a competition, five architects um, invited to design a pavilion that sat, was, was intended to sit in front of the Saatchi and on, along King's, Gro- uh, King's Road. And the last one was Kingsgrave. Um, we had never designed a, a pavilion before, and we, our idea was to consider a set of um, circumstances around the prospect of including artists within the, the kind of design, the development of the design concept. So originally, we, we, we carefully selected three um, artists. The first one was Angela de la Cruz. Um, she's she's uh, developed a number of installations which look at um, form and material, I suppose, is, is the simplest way of, of, of trying to describe what she does. But she, she talked in great detail about the perception of objects set from, from different perspectives. So this sort of idea that you stand far away and you might have an idea about what I thought was a crumpled mattress, but actually it's an idea of a, a crumpled canvas and then as you get closer to her subjects the material starts to deconstruct so this looks like a stuffed black bin liner actually when you get very close to it the texture starts to soften and it starts to emulate ideas about you know all sorts of things so so we we thought with her this 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 you could be part of the specification you could help us develop a material or, or an idea about a material this building having a presence in the street, and then the, perhaps the ingredients of the material that we would eventually design. Jermaine Krupp, she worked with us to... She encouraged a conversation about thresholds. Um, and then Peter Liversidge, he writes... 
he, he does all sorts of very interesting work, but one of the, what he produced for us for the, for the submission was um, two predictions. So he has a whole series of projects which are, he, he types on a, a very old typewriter that describes something that, that might happen. So he writes in, in, in a typewriter, which is something from the past, but he projects a future. So he's sort of implying that this building might become part of someone's memory moving forwards. So they were sort of very quickly, I guess, three favourite projects, which talk, don't, are not very commercial, but sort of, I suppose I was trying to, taking from, from that, trying to balance my career up at, at that point between the, the, the sort of more technical side of architecture, delivery, and perhaps the more emotive, so asking questions about what you do as a, as a professional, what's architecture really about, and what is it that, what's this, what's my next step? Um, so, moving on to, 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 to Mary Duggan, um, I, I wanted to establish a practice that um, has a, a very different pace to it. So, to take the work to find and hopefully accept, and a number of projects are coming forward, projects that I look at in a, in a very different way, respond in, intuitively and work out how I can break down clients' expectations and present to them a project that, or a, or a particular idea about a project that I want to take forward. And I want to take it forward in a way that is, isn't flabby, isn't, it's just a very, this is this great idea that we've had and we want to convince you that you should build it out of a certain material or you should invest in an idea about how you really want to use this building, you know, what's, what's your long-term vision. And I, I like the idea that, so, you know, this slightly abstract, this is, this is just a piece of I'm, so I'm, I'm slowing down. I'm, I'm, I'm in my. I've got a second chance. What would I? What would I really do if I can start again? And I, you know, I am starting again. So this is just a piece of pink for Micah. I like pink. And it's just got life ingrained into it. And it probably started out as the most efficient specification because it's actually in the Shepherdess Cafe on City Road. But I. I kind of enjoy the fact that it it's gouged it's I don't know I don't know why it's like that but it's it has a life and it you know it, it, it's the result of a single decision and I I wanted the work so so when I talk about my work now I say this is a model so this is a model that Will Guthrie in my office made and we made it because we have an idea that the building will be made from rammed concrete and we want to construct our own geology. So we're going to go to all of the quarries in Somerset. It's in, it's in Somerset. And we're going to work out how to make this new material. So we had a discussion about what this model should be and how we should present it to the client. And he made it. And we discussed what grade of sandpaper. It's made of jasmineite and it's got other ingredients in it. 
we bought the sandpaper, which is grade whatever, and we sanded it down. And we presented this model to the client alongside this model, which again went through a very similar process of working out how we might build a model that describes round concrete with various ingredients in it. And obviously it's not the sample, it's not one-to-one, -one, it's one-to-twenty. But quite interested in just saying, well, this is our process, this is our interest, this is it, this is the thing that we're going to pursue. There aren't others, but this is how we want to develop your project. And similarly, you know, we, we construct living scenarios and describe to them, you know, how they might experience through this condition of the plan, how they might experience the landscape as a result of that. And this is another project which is um, actually a neighbour to the swimming pool that I, I, I talked about earlier with my um, nephew. That was a very light structure. This is, um, believe it or not, it's a precast concrete pink building. I feel ridiculous saying pink now. And we worked through it. So the technical side was very fast. We felt that it needed to be a heavy structure. It's a performance building. There are lots of acoustic reasons to do that. And we went through a process of considering structure and, and worked out that we could build a structure that was also the skin. So we're, we're pouring a structure which will be the skin, essentially. And we've made... I've brought that. So, And this is it. So the same sort of thing. We had a very long conversation about this. And I really love it because we decided that at the base it needed a kind of very tactile quality to it and we, we talked about shuttering and our version of the shuttering was cardboard and Vaseline and all sorts of things and we found pink pigments so there are a whole set of samples of pinks and it sparkles and we, we put something in it and we, you know, again, we're sort of saying to our clients and they're responding very well, I have to say this is, this is, this is where we're going with this and we've pursued a set of ingredients, which is, you know, not that, but it's a technical specification, which is about concrete, and it's supported by engineers and specialists. So, um, hadn't really done that at Doug and Morris, and probably wouldn't, but I, I, I think you can be quite intuitive, quite singular about an approach to a building project. And that's my um, pursuit, I guess, in practice. So the other thing that I'm doing, I, I quite enjoy... Um, I don't get the word collaboration, actually, but I get that you can get great benefit hugely from other areas of expertise, and we do that all the time. We talk to experts and specialists and what have you. So what my, when I demerged from Doug and Morris, suddenly the practice and I, about nine members of staff moved to a, a different space. And it was weirdly quiet because we, we, the, the, the kind of atmosphere in, in Doug and Morris was loud and phone calls and contractors and complaining about design and build contracts and that sort of thing. And when I moved away, it was very different. And, you know, for obvious reasons, which is most of the projects were front end and we were designing new buildings and there's less shouting when you're designing I guess but I invited in I decided I wanted to run a residency program which I'm calling a residency program I don't know if it really is that but I invited in a ceramicist um, Cara and she just came in with a potter's wheel and made stuff so she, 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 she made pots all day long 
and sat in on a number of conversations. So with this project that I've just described, the, the Averies, the precast concrete, she, she was part of the conversation. I don't think we influenced each other and we certainly didn't collaborate on it, but she decided that she would go to Somerset. She camped, she gathered some organic material, um, hawthorn, thistles, and she burnt them to an ash and she used the ash in her glaze. So the bowl that you see on the bottom left is sort of her version of this idea about a sort of a marble facade. And it was just really interesting. So we made this facade, she made a bowl, and there was a, there was a mutual benefit just through this sort of cohabitation. Um, and similarly, whilst we made that, we were talking about the base of this. That's a man, I guess. And how are we going to make soften the base of this building? And she made, she's, she really hates this pot, but I love it, the, the pink pot on the bottom left. She made that with this sort of, these rivets around the outside because, you know, her version of this vessel, you know, this is a vessel, I guess, at this scale, is that you'd be able to hold it and there's something in your, you know, the, the, her tactile for this particular scale piece was, were these grooves. And then our, the current resident is Nigel Peake. He's an illustrator. And he came in and he said, oh, God, no, I don't want to go out in the open space. He's sort of hid in the cupboard and did these amazing pencil drawings. And his idea was to listen, sort of be a detective, earwig on conversations and create these pieces. So he does these amazing pencil drawings. It was very therapeutic, actually. He... So he, he picks up, he, he uses pencils, he sharpens and sharpens, and he, he draws seven layers of pencils in different grains and directions. And these are the resultant images, which are not captured very well here. You need to get up close to see what he's actually done. But it was, it was like therapy. It was just having this guy. So he'd come in, and one day he'd make something, made, job done. You know, in architecture, it's, what, three years? So it's just quite nice that he'd go through a process in front of us, really dedicated, and, and, and it, you know, even more so that these were very much a response to, to our work. So just to talk a little bit about, what did that say? Voice. Um, like I said, I'm, 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 I'm quite a nervy person. I don't do a lot of talks, but I think you can put yourself out there in lots of different ways. And I'm, I really like Instagram. Um, I, you know, that feels like a, a confession. But um, I think you can put things out there that talk in this particular medium, if, if you can call it that, that describe how you work. So I like the fact that I can have an idea. So this is just two images. One is... This is a competition we did for a um, courtyard uh, in Mayfair and we found this historical image and then we built this structure and I went to the shop and bought an asparagus plant and shoved it into the model and that was, you know, that's an iPhone snap. And I, I like the fact that you can be quite quick about an idea and show it and then you can, and in the same way, that's process, but then you can just frame it in a very particular way and say, you know, this is the one, this is the one we've done and this is the one we're pursuing and they're, they're in the bin. Um, so I get, this is just my website as it currently stands. You know, it's quite, I'm trying to be 
very careful and singular about what I say. Um, a pursuit of an idea, and you sort of I like the idea that I can convince clients to, to buy into it in the way that you know an artist might hang a picture and that's it, it's done. I've, I've done it and I've, I've created something and you kind of need to like it or, 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 or not move on. That's a dreadful thing to say to a client. But, but, but believe that I can work through this problem for you and, and give you something that perhaps you didn't imagine that you, you, would, you could possibly have or you're, you're commissioning me as an architect to vision something for you surely not to give you something that you you've already thought about because you could get a technician to do, to, to, to do that so I have a cupboard of objects much like that that I, I really like and I've got this idea um, that I'll collect them slowly I'll collect them all because I really like them and I they mean something and some might reappear in other projects I'm not sure yet and I'm really happy with that. I'm really happy that, you know, on one level I'm making intuitive decisions and I'm making things and thinking about how I make them and present them, but also at the same time there's an ambiguity about them. So that object would probably take us on a, on a journey to resolve those ingredients and, and hopefully um, set out something that, that, you know, I'd like to think would be truly original. Um, so I think to close... I think I've got a few more slides. Um, I don't know what the answer to this, I think the, the, the bigger question that's been asked today about constructing or destructing the city and the environment, but because I think London is a place that those two conditions, you know, and the world, not just London obviously, those two conditions will continuously coexist. We're, we're introducing new things and, and, and taking pieces away all the time. So I, I, don't know what, I don't know what today's session concluded. Um, I probably ought to declare that I had a bit of an identity crisis, you know, when I moved away from Doug and Morris, and maybe this is my counselling session, I don't know. But I think I've, I think I've got to the end of it. <laughs> Um, and it has got something to do with stepping off a treadmill and being able to look back and reflect on on what I've done. And you know, I'm, in a way, I want to say to other, I've been, I've, I feel like I've been given this opportunity, and at the moment, it feels like a good thing. So going back to the book, you know, the book is I'm not writing a book, but in my head, there's a constant kind of churn and wrestle with this past. Um, and I, I don't think I have any answers today, really. Um, but I, be, I believe, I do believe that the profession, maybe to echo perhaps some of the things that Amanda Levitt has said, is sort of there are there are there's talent that I think is somehow being ebbed away just by very commercial processing processes and processing of ideas that I feel is a little bit unnecessary. And, and to some extent, I think there are architects who are doing amazingly well in that context and others that perhaps aren't seeing that the profession is slightly sort of eating itself um and i must admit i hate seeing architects criticized for working so hard under those very severe conditions it, it really really bothers me and i think somehow we need to stop that and actually offer offer greater support um oh yes yeah, so the, i thought i'd finish with this anecdote which is I 
I called myself Mary Duggan because I am Mary Duggan. And, um, you know, there was a sort of obvious, well, people might know who I am. I'm half of a practice that has done some, some good things. So it was, a, it was quite a fast decision. That's what I'm going to call myself. But actually very self-conscious about it at the same time. So I did this thing that the graphic designer I work with who developed my name. Also, my name has got great letters, apparently, fat letters. They, they work well in caps. So I did that. And I, I said, OK, I'll get this guy, sign-writing Jack, who does gold leaf, to gold leaf my name above the door. And I did it, and we filmed it, and it's on my Instagram and we did like a time-lapse thing of it. And it was, you know, it was really nice, but I was doing it. And you know when you just think, it's, it's, I just feel a bit uncomfortable about this gold text. And then I thought, this is great. So this, this is my daughter who, again, she was honestly wearing grey on that day. And the, the, the facade is grey. It wasn't staged. But she saw it. And, I was, and she pointed at it. And like, that's, a, that's an iPhone photograph. And I was really chuffed about Oh, God, maybe it's okay. Deep breaths. And then um, the following, I don't know, week, I got a letter from my landlord. You know, this, is a lot, this probably comes back to London, saying, Dear Mary, um, that signboard on your property, that fascia, um, I'm afraid you're not allowed to hang signs on it or put any signage on it at all. That's our policy. So I was quite relieved. Um, so it was. So we got signwriting. Jack came back with his sandpaper, and it's now gold dust, I guess. So um, yeah, that's that's that story. So. How are the nerves now? It's not wine yet, no, it's not vodka. We've got, another, we've got half an hour to wait for that. Okay. You've talked about, um, I suppose, the disentanglement as kind of uh, an identity crisis. Also, in an interview, you described it as cathartic as well, very yeah. recently. Why was yeah. it cathartic? Um, in what way? I guess once I got to the, the realisation that it was happening and I was letting it happen... And I could, I had time. I suppose it was cathartic because I had, so it was about a year's worth of thinking. You know, I was still employed. What am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? And I was able to, to choose in the end what sectors, what sorts of projects I wanted to work on and what I definitely wanted to, to, to sort of push to one side. Um, well, it allowed you to kind of recalibrate or where you, where you wanted to go or where you were not yeah, going that you yeah, wanted to go in. Yeah, yeah. Make some tough decisions, but ones that I felt, you know, would give me a, a different trajectory. I mean, life, you know, life is full of micro-decisions um, that we all take every single day um, and some macro-decisions uh, as well. Sometimes when you get to our age, you know, in your, you know, in your 40s, um, you look back. And you think, yeah. how did I get to where I am yeah. now? You look back, yeah. oh, God, I've kind of drifted. It's like kind of driving a tanker, and yeah. suddenly it's like, oh, how did I get here? I know. You know yeah. It might not have been where you wanted to end up. Yeah. And it sounds like 
that's, that's, that's kind of the process professionally that you've yeah, gone through. Yeah. I mean, everyone, I think, everyone has got this other profession that they would do. If What's they yours? Doing. What's yours? What would you be? What happened to recently? I, was, I want to be a florist. Oh, it would be a great job. My mum used to deliver flowers, and I really loved the smell of flowers. Mm. But then, actually, I got a job in a florist, and the water stinks. <laughs> <laughs> that process you have to go through in the morning to, to, to you know, clean the water. Yeah. Stinks. Yeah. That, that, in a nice yeah. way? No, <laughs> no. no. You're expecting so, this sort of flowers, floral <laughs> smell. I just thought this lovely floral thing, and actually it's, it's quite hard work being a florist. So well, there's still it. time to become a florist, you know, yeah, later on. Yeah. Maybe could open up Yeah, one. but I do love pink, Tamsie, and I think, you know, this idea about the sort of the, the tiles matching the flesh, that's a, that's a true story. But I do love cherry blossom and, you know, that time of the year where things, it's very apparent that things are changing and I think, you know, a bit of the pinkness comes from, it sort of represents something, you know, you know the part of the world that, that makes you think about change. I think everyone has that sort of spring feeling. It's also hard, you know, is, it's hard because, you know, you're a parent, you were running a business and a very, as you said, you know, within London in particular, a very aggressive commercial um, atmosphere as well, you know, very, you know, very full on running a business which was mm-hmm. growing and growing and becoming very, very successful. Sometimes you lose yourself. Sometimes, you know, yeah. I, I felt the same as well. Some, you know, mm-hmm. periods in my life where you end up drifting away from perhaps who you want to be. You know, if yeah. I, I, I told you before, I, I took a, a few months off and thought I wanted to be, be a cheesemaker. That was yeah. a complete mistake. Yeah. I did not want to be yeah. a cheesemaker at all. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. I love cheesemakers. I love cheese. I did not like the process of making cheese. Yeah. Anyway, um, but sometimes those kind of processes are good because it, then it, it makes you think. Oh, it takes, you take stock and you realise. Oh, actually, I'm quite very happy doing what I was doing. Before, yeah, I'll go back yeah. to doing what I'm doing before, but maybe make some changes yeah. in what I, I was going to so do. So I've done a bit of that. I've got back into... So I didn't use CAD software for about five years. And when I moved... And I really missed it. And actually, I always say to people, I really love being a project architect, more so than I being a director. And what I didn't like about being a director of a practice of 50 is you sort of skim across things. You become very thin... A big influence, probably, but not, in a, not, not necessarily in a good way. So I, really, I was really looking forward to getting back into a smaller practice and having a CAD drawing and, and drawing and, you know, drawing that plan that you're telling someone to do really well and, mm. you know, proving to myself in a way. Because I think you lose, lose track and you, you wonder whether actually if, if you were in that position yourself, if you could do it as well as you mm. are asking and so that's been cathartic on uh, on twitter today there is a, an inter, in, a twitter meme at the moment about success someone's said you know success to be successful is you know this way this x y and z and one of the interesting um things i've come out loads of people have said you know to be successful you've got to be a right old pain in the arse or to be successful you've got to be a horrible person but a few people said you know what, you know questioning what true success mm. is and actually as an architect, you kind of think that success is, is making sure you get bigger and bigger projects and, the, yeah. and you, know, you assume that the, the practice should get bigger and bigger, but that's obviously not necessarily the case. I mean, no. Doug and Morris were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but you found your role in Doug and Morris perhaps not being what you as wanted it to be no. and getting no. thin. So this process of getting thinner, if you, kind of, if you, you know, cast your mind back to 2004 and before that, but when you, know, when you set up, what was it about that that you loved that you lost? Probably what I've 
got back, actually. The, the fact that I was drawing, I was meeting clients, I was, I, was, I was doing it all. You know, I was responsible for the work, for the architecture. Really driving the design concept, creating it. Mm. Um, very hands-on. I mean, I love detail. Um, other architects don't love detail. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's hands-on, I guess. Mm. I'm being, those, I'm being in touch with all the... Cause, you know, all the design. different disciplines. Yeah, and, and, and at 10, you know, I can, I can... My office, my I've got lovely people working for me, and I can now... I did get to the point where I didn't know everyone's name. At 50, it's very hard. And particularly if someone isn't working on your project, you don't know who they are, really. But at 10, I can see the entire office. I can bring them together on Monday mornings, and I can share the tasks so I know exactly what someone opposite me is doing. At 50, you don't. They're plugged into a team and that you, do, you, you can't really see and, and enjoy and participate in mm. precisely what that person is involved in. So it means being involved in all the different processes yes. of a building's fruition. Yes, yeah. yes. And that's what was, kind of dis- was disappearing as yes. you yeah, get bigger and bigger. Yes, definitely. Let's, let's go back even further. Let's go back to when you first wanted to be an architect uh, and why... Yeah. I'm just interested about why you wanted to become an architect, particularly, you know, because one of the things I'm interested in and, and for this session here is about the identity of the profession, the identity of the figure of the yeah, architect. Yeah, And, you know, when, um, I mean, how old were you when you wanted to be an architect? And how did you know what an architect was? Because you've got no architects in your family. No, no architects, no creatives at all in my family. So I'm the first generation in my family to go to university. There is a, 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 just a tier of us, and I don't think there are any more at the moment. When I was, so I was the last year to do O-levels, I don't know, or, yeah, the last year, so you can probably all work out how old I am, which, anyway. Um, and in, in this particular year, they were driving this women in science campaign, so there, there was, there's always been this sort of gender thing going on in, you know, in the background, not enough women were, step, were doing science, and I was very technical, very into science, but loved art. So I just found this middle ground and I, you know, bring science and art together and, and you, I sort of, fed, architecture was my, the answer to that at that point. And at the time, a few years later, my dad got into very small scale developments and he said, oh, you know, Mary, you should, you should be an architect. What, it cost what? me a fortune to get a building control application, you know. <laughs> it's good this to have somebody in the family. Yeah. <laughs> it's always yeah. good to have a well, lawyer and an architect. Irish family, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you, you could do this job for me. And, yeah, and I, I just, I suppose I sort of slowly expose myself to it. So, you know, I don't have that Lego story or mm. what's the other one I heard recently? You know, there's no epiphany. Yeah, it was yeah. just something that I sort of slowly suggested and, and, well, and when your dad, when your dad said that, did you, what, what came into your mind? What did you think an architect was? Well, he dragged me to these projects that he worked on and we had really funny conversations. He used to do things like... I, he's not alive anymore, so he probably, he probably won't mind. Um, he used to have... He used to uh, convert houses into apartments and he always had this problem of lobbies free sprinklers and all of those things, so he <laughs> construct lobbies and then take them down again. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> Get the certificate and do that awful thing that, you know, I think lots of architects do building regulation things and mm. then fight back. 
But did you know so what... building sites. I thought it was building sites, right. and I, I, I saw the drawings, and I really liked the um, die lines, and I, you know, I, I love the idea of, of having a May line, and it was, it was a did very different thing to everyone in my family are plumbers, plasterers, bricklayers. Yeah. So, so it's kind it's of this thing of you know, put me on a pedestal, be the architect. And how did, you, did, did that feel comfortable? I mean, you say, you know, you say that you're somebody I've got that lots of, I go to lots of Irish weddings and, you know, I, lots of people sneer at me. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because I'm the one who tells them to take the brickwork down. Oh, right. Tell them to change <laughs> things. So they have this strange perception of what an architect is. Yeah. Which is quite funny. Yeah. <laughs> and this would have been, what, the mid-80s, would it? Yeah, so... Was there any? Yes, I mean, was there, were there any? You know, I'm going to utter that horrible phrase, role model. But were there any role models that you, when you started to investigate what this thing an architect might be, were there any? Was there anyone? I mean, particularly as a woman entering a profession, of mm. course, which is famous for being so, you know, undiverse. I think those role models, the the women that I met. Do you mean women, or do you mean generally? Have to be a woman, but anyone in terms of a way of working and an identity with which you could my identify. My favourite person in architecture, I don't think he's here, is Niall McLaughlin. He was my tutor at the Bartlett. So I did a very technical. I went to Brighton Polytechnic, which was a very technical course at that time. It's now Brighton University. It actually became a university before I finished, but I joined when it was a polytechnic. So I had a very technical undergrad. I knew how to draw a detail. I knew what cross-ventilation meant. I knew that there were thermal issues associated with architecture. So I had that backdrop. And then I went to the Bartlett, and I was sort of introduced to the, the sort of poetry of architecture by Phil Tabor and Neil McLaughlin. And I couldn't, couldn't believe what architecture could be. really opened my eyes. I built installations. I made people behave in spaces in completely different ways by installing devices and, and there were various other methods which are not walls, bricks and mortar. That, and I, I looked at paintings, I looked at poetry, I looked at all sorts of things. So that, that, I think that, very, that marriage of a very technical undergrad and a very different postgrad, completely design-led, was, was a really good thing for me. Yeah, so in the, I suppose at the bar then you discovered more the poetry or the expression yes, within yeah, architecture. Yeah. Were you ever aware of the sexism? of the industry? I mean, both the architecture industry, um, but also the construction industry. I think no, because I am a family of girls, apart from my dad, so I never had this sort of, um, the men will do this mm. in the family, and, you know, he'll go to university and you'll do something else. And I had, culturally, Irish backdrop, very old-fashioned I would never call it sexist so there were you know that my mum took 15 years off work and brought up four, four girls and the men went out to work and that was the, the culture of you know that, that I was brought up in very working class I guess and I think for me so now I meet men who I think who my colleagues who are maybe 15 years younger than me, will describe as sexist men. And my reaction is, and these are usually contractors and the like, my reaction is always, I don't think they're that. I think they're just very old-fashioned. And every now and then, I think maybe I've got that wrong. I meet people who just shouldn't, younger men who just shouldn't be like that. But these guys, 
who've probably come from a background not dissimilar to mine, I think behave, may behave in a certain way just because it's just been engendered within them. It's, it's a different kind of... It's, which is very, it's, I think that's a very different thing. Mm. Were there any... I mean, you know, when you were going through architecture school, learning what it might be to be an architect... Were there, we talked about Neil Clockton, but were there any, any female architects as well that, that um, stuck out that you thought, God, the way she's doing it, she's really got yeah, it right? Yeah, I met uh, Farshid when she was at a foreign office. So we Farshid were, Musabi. Fruit Musabi, yeah. yeah. Um, we were, the practice I was working at the time, Gulliver Langston Architects, were collaborating with them on the Leicestershire Shires project. And I did walk into a room with this particular client, which was uh, wall-to-wall men in a big kind of suite, and I found myself just sitting next to her and watching her. I think that was the first time I've ever seen men rolling their eyes, young men, and she was presenting very thoroughly and amazingly well a really thick report describing this amazing retail analysis that she'd done of South Moulton Street and various retail environments just to justify the decisions that she'd made on the mall she was designing. And I just thought, wow, she blew me away. You know, I, I thought, hopefully I'll be as brave as you one day. I don't think, actually, there's a huge age gap between us. In what way was she brave, do you think? She just did it. She just sort of ploughed on. She ignored... I, mean, I think, actually, male or female, someone rolls their eyes at you, it's just like, ugh, my stomach hits the floor. Mm. But she just ignored it. She had the belief in the work that she was presenting and I was really, really encouraged by that. That's interesting, the self-belief. Yeah. The belief that what you're doing is Is, right. Is the right thing. Yeah. And other, I mean, I meet lots of, you know, so she is a figure and, you know, well-known. But I constantly meet women in roles that are so important that, you know, in this conversation be unknown, but I've worked with project managers client advisors who just take on these other roles in architecture, which I think of it like project managers um, that, you know, need, that, 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 that keep projects alive and understand that they're not there to interrogate and compromise or, or, or pare down the architecture, but rather just make sure that the, the communication is working well. At that time, yeah. were you aware of, you know, obviously that... That kind of period, I suppose, the most famous female architect was Zaha Hadid, yeah. as well, who also had a very particular um, role, a very particular brand that, that she impressed upon um, on her work as well, and the way that she worked. Were you aware of her and what she was doing in, in terms of the kind of image of what a, or the role model of what a, a woman in architecture might be? Yeah. You know, she rose to become, and still is, you know, the most famous female architect. Yeah. I was very aware of her. I think everyone was. And interested in her, you know, let's say up to 2000-ish. And, you know, I remember attending a lecture at the Bartlett and being really impressed. Not ever really particularly into the architecture, so I suppose that's maybe why I, I don't really think about her too much. But then when it got to the state, I felt that there was a stage when... The brand kicked in. I don't really like that about architecture. I don't really like the fact that you associate a piece of architecture with a person. I think a piece of architecture needs to stand up by itself. Mm. And I don't think it should, you know, 
we all borrow ideas off our own projects or other projects and we're influenced, but I don't think... I think two projects should really stand up by themselves. I suppose to the... Nth, not have this... Yeah. Well, the nth degree you have the culture of the star, yes. star architect or the, the yeah. famous architect that then uses their image or constructed image of themselves, yeah. you know, in order to promote and get their own work. Yeah. It's, so it's, if I start wearing pink, <laughs> maybe that's the point that I need a health check. Well, it's interesting. There's a, there's a really <laughs> fascinating ambivalence about you because, you know, on the one hand, you're reticent, you know, when you say, you know, you're nervous about putting yourself forward. Um, you say that, you know, when you were in Doug and Morris, you were the, you know, the one sort of behind, Joe was the front man and you were sort of the one behind. Hmm. Um, and then you're, you know, you're slightly wary or cautious about, you know, choosing the name Mary Duggan yeah. for the practice. Talk me through that. Where does that ambivalence come from? Do you feel the need or do you feel the um, compulsion to have to use your name to get your name out there? Or is I there something else going on? You need to be careful because I think a lot of architects move very quickly because they over talk themselves or they network too much and suddenly you, you can win. I think you can win work very quickly if you're, if you're minded to get out there, take people for dinner, attend lots of events. I think you can win work. I don't think it's... I probably shouldn't say this, but I think lots of architects struggle with it, but maybe they just struggle to go to networking events or, or struggle to work out who they need to stand in front of. And I think once you're there, once you are on that treadmill, things can move very fast and you find yourself questioning whether you should turn down a job. Because I, I think if you, if you do work well, you know, business things aside, fees, you need to earn fees and it needs to make sense. You, you, I think you'll get work through producing good work. Not because you're tap dancing or, or whatever. I think you need to work at the right pace that suits... That suits your practice model. And when you began, you know, working with Joe, were those, you talked to the end about, you know, the roles were, you know, very sharply divided, really. Yeah. Were those roles sharply divided at the beginning when you worked out who was going to do what in a, you know, I think we practice? quickly fell into, you know, we, so we didn't study together, actually. We just started going out with each other and then three years later we set up a practice. So it probably isn't the best, I think the, the best practices are established because you've worked, you've, you've worked alongside each other at university or something, so you've, quite tuned into each other's architectural sensibilities. That wasn't really us. We came together at, I think we set up at 35, so old-ish, 33 or something. Um, and we quickly fell into, you know, we understood where this, our skills would be best placed in growing a practice. Mm. And it, so it was more that. And I think most practices will say, this person needs to be an associate because they can run teams, they're good managers or they're good leaders or whatever it is, and, and put these people in the right places. And that's very much what we did mm. um, to build the practice. Why do you think it's so common within architecture for partners in life to also become business partners? Because it's quite, I mean, I know it happens in some other fields, but it's very, very, very common within architecture. Why do you think it happens? I suppose architecture and life and domesticity and workplaces are very closely associated, you know, it's, it's too, you know, it's, a, it's, it's very difficult to separate architecture from your day-to-day. -day. I walk down the street and I'm constantly looking up and looking at details and I hate it, but it's just, <laughs> you know, it's, I hate myself sometimes because I, I always look at people's clothes 
and you always make a judgment. It's, it, you just can't, you know, details. You know, I'm looking at this, this table. Why is this? This isn't a new table. Why is this I don't thing? think Mr. Chipperfield... Yeah, no, I don't think he designed that, does he? <laughs> but I think, you know, you just can't get away from it. It's, it's always just, switched on. You know, this, this is amazing, this room, isn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah what do you think, what do you think really, of David Chipperfield's yeah, work? Not it's, bad? It's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Things are all right. So it's just that kind of culture within architecture I that you, you're just, living it all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. And continually. It's just there. It doesn't go away. It's kind of weird in a way. I mean, as, you know, I'm not an architect. I didn't train as an architect. And so it's interesting always looking into the profession from the outside and seeing how unusual it can be sometimes. And, you know, that, the, the, you know, the partners in life thing is, is, is quite an unusual yeah. thing. Because, yeah. obviously, you, know, you, you grow as partners in life, but then you've also got to grow. I mean, you must be with them all the time as yeah. well. I must be... I can't imagine doing that myself. It would probably yeah. drive me completely insane. Yeah. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's quite a peculiar thing that you're constantly on it. And it actually brings, must yeah. bring with it, you know, professionally as well, your own, it's own kind of pressure as yeah. well. Yeah. You know, you continue as you're evolving as well. Yeah. Which must, I assume, lead to the kind of catharsis now when you're, yeah. when you're sort of sitting out... Not partners with an architect anymore. It's no. great. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, but I think architecture is quite interesting. You know, if you go to a dinner party, which you know, if, if you're lucky, every now and then I go to dinner parties with non-architects, and someone says, "So, what do you do?" and you say, "I'm an architect," you always get that, oh, really, and then then you find yourself stuck in a conversation about a rear extension planning application. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, get me out of here. <laughs> Where's the wine? Top me up. What do you think, yeah. people? Is are you? Po- are you able, now you're so embedded within the architect profession, are you able to look at it from, from an outsider's perspective? I mean, what do you think the image of the architect is now? When you speak to friends that are not architects, what do they think of? They're still very impressed. But I don't think they know what... And their mum doesn't know what I do. I that's always, it, that's always the key test. Quite, yeah, does she your has mum. no idea. I think she thinks I draw pictures. And, you know... Occasionally, I might put on a hard hat or something. I don't Has she really... seen any of your work or your buildings? She came to my house, but no, she hasn't been seen any of my buildings. And do you think that kind of the figure of the architect is quite interesting? I found it, you know, I found out, um, I think it was publicised about a month ago that they're remaking The Fountainhead, the film, famously based on yeah. Ayn Rand's uh, novel, which I think is probably, you know, is, is that depiction of the architect that hangs round the necks of most architects yeah. um, as, a de- as a depiction. It's sort of really embedded in culture, particularly, of course, the depiction of Howard Rourke and the, that kind of um, image of the ego, mm. the egocentric architect, and, of course, male architect. Yeah. It's very interesting that it's being um, remade. Um, hasn't been cast yet, so if anyone's Ooh, got any suggestions. Um, do you feel that millstone in terms of the image of the architect? I feel very responsible, yeah. So I've, I, every single project, whether it's a house, a school, what am I doing at the moment? We're just finishing an exhibition in the Barbican. We've designed the, the, the summer show. And I, I'm always terrified that something isn't going to be quite right something is it isn't going to be different enough or exciting enough or actually change something be you know really you know change things i look at this this space is amazing and i can see exactly what it's done and it, I, I think architecture really needs to do that always 
always needs to be, and I don't think every piece of architecture needs to be, you know, beautiful necessarily, but I think housing always has to, you know, the spaces and, you know, you're, you're do, you are constructing and making things that people will experience and it will become their memories and it will be part of their lives, something that they will reflect on in the future. And that's, I just, I feel that, I feel that, that that's... That's a really important part of what I do. And that interest, again, with all the process within architecture yeah. and control. And, and make, yes, and, you know, most architecture takes a long time to develop, and I think it's important that clients really understand that and be part of that process, the why and the, the reasons that things are the way they are. Now, having come this, through this cathartic experience, this identity crisis, this kind of, you know, re-emergence... Yeah. Um, do you feel now that you have enough kind of... What's going to stop you from, you know, in five years' time, you know, designing skyscrapers with a practice of 300? I don't think... I'm not... Nothing will stop me doing that. <laughs> but I want to have a system and a team and a methodology that I can kind of operate at that scale and I, I don't want to design a tower because I want the money or because I need to generate a net let and there'll be some kind of bonus attached to it I want to do it my way um, and I think I could I think I could design a skyscraper as a practice of 10 and just work out who I need to work alongside to deliver it I think what's important to me is that I've worked out how to make things well, how to have a conversation that works, mm. which is a small group. It's very hard to get that to work in a big group. And it isn't something that feeds a bank account. It, it's, it's, a, it's a compact process that then might move to, to another team. I think that team could be somewhere else in another office and we're having a conversation and those 20 people that it might take to do the next bit the very technical bit, I think, can exist somewhere else for me, provided I've, I've got a hand in it. And working out who you are and who the practice is, which presumably must be kind of closely linked as well, in the sense that, you know, you've got your name on the practice, mm -hmm. um, you're setting up a practice with your name on it. Otherwise, I mean, are there a set of qualities, not, I won't use the horrible word mission statement but, or phrase, mm -hmm. um, but are there a set of qualities that you can then use to judge what you're doing by... Like, are there a set, a set of things, right, this is, this is what Mary Duggan is about, yeah. architecturally? So I have... I'm told I have a good eye. That's a funny thing that architects say. I, 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 can, I can see that people have a good eye for things. And I have a very strong sense if, if something's going in the right direction or the wrong direction. And, you know, it, it's not because it's beautiful or it's ugly. I just think, actually, this has got legs. And... Uh, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> Do you have a set of qualities? I yeah, mean, that you so can I, I, I can. By? Look, I have to, so I, I, yeah. Well, I don't know if I've got a set of qualities, but I don't want to let anything out of my practice that isn't really good. I don't want anyone to think she's doing that. It's a bread and butter job, or she's doing it for the money. I want, I want, I want architects, non-architects, to look at it and think, "Wow, that's unusual. That's clever," or you know, haven't seen that before. It's a bit like just, a chef making sure that everything that leaves the... Yeah, yeah, just have a... You know, my QA is really important to me. 
very conscious about that, very self-conscious, I suppose, in that yeah. respect. And does it, I mean, I guess, you know, in terms of expressing who you are and your identity, I mean, you've talked about Instagram and the website. I mean, presumably those are ways of defining who That's you are. That's it for qualities. me at the moment, yeah. And invitations to... <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, and, and talking you know, about... Think, yeah what those qualities might be. Yeah, I think it says I think it says a lot. You know, what I show, what I choose to show, I think it's quite clear that those things are what I'm what I'm learning out of the office, whether it's a rough image, but it's an image that says something quite important mm. or it's a finished project. And now that you know now that you know now that you are you know, two or three decades on into a career within as an architect, as a figure of an architect. Mm-hmm. Probably a bit of a mean question, this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What kind of image do you want to protect, project of, of what an architect is in the profession today? I think that there are lots of types of architects. Though I'd like my, you know, I'd, I'd like to produce, let's say, ten great projects from now that might people might look at and think are interesting. I'm a great supporter of those architects who are. You know, Doug and Morris, I, you know, I think they do. Doug and Morris does housing really well. It's really hard. It's so hard to... So I, I look at all of those architects out there who are really trying so hard to make good buildings. I, so I, I don't think there's a singular answer. I think there are architects who do something quite specific and want to do really interesting pieces of work. Like an artist might produce a piece of work, and I think there are architects who are really trying to tackle problems and, and make things deal with the flux of architecture, which is you need you need to build things. People need to live. People there is a housing crisis, and then really operating and working and producing fantastic projects in those circumstances. It must be impossibly hard. I mean, it's such a complex profession, yeah, such a complex it really is. industry, yeah. in order to construct a building. I always think, every time I, I'm constantly checking myself, it must be so incredible to, in, in your head to come up with a scheme that is detailed down to the last rivet and yeah, there's also a conceptual yeah, scheme for an entire building yeah. to exist in space over there. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. It's hard. It's, it's an amazing hard. Yeah, it's hard thing. to sleep <laughs> as an architect. Because I'm particularly one that's so interested yeah, in, in detail. you wake up over a bolt. You wake up in the middle of the night over a bolt's detail, definitely. Well, hence the need yeah. to slow down in terms yeah. of the amount of work that you're doing rather than this kind of constant yeah. unease at the stuff that's churning, you know, coming through an office over which you're trying to retain control. That must have been a complete and utter yeah. nightmare. Yeah, hard, very hard. Look, I wish you great luck. I should be checking on you in five years' time if you've, if you've turned into Philip Johnson. Yeah, uh, yeah. knock on my door. A knock yeah. on your door. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Mary Duggan. Thank you uh, to Mary for speaking here today. I found that very inspirational, and I think it's really uh, gratifying to hear from an architect um, the way you were talking about constructing for people's lives and the sensitivity and the responsibility of the role of the architect coming, I think, to the forefront there, which was really interesting. So thank you very much. And also thank you very much to Tom Dykoff for joining us here this afternoon and for joining Mary in conversation. So thank you to Tom and Mary. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.